Hang on. Did you... You've got the wrong copy in here. Wait, what? You have the wrong ads. What? Are you sure? Yeah. Live from the Mundangerous Fane of Loth in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 190 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're continuing our series on playing non-human characters and talking about the Drow. But first the rogue traders seek new partners in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign, and later Driss Doerden plays against type in the Character Creation Forge. So we got some news recently that Pathfinder 2 is getting an official release date, I think, like, right at Gen Con. I'm assuming it's going to be, like, in Gen Con with giant lines. Mm-hmm. Yep, that that seemed remarkably predictable. <laughs> yeah. Two, was it two years ago it will be, was Starfinder? Yeah, two years ago was Starfinder. Last year was the Pathfinder playtest. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So... I guess if Pathfinder is your thing, which apparently it is for very many people, considering how many people were playing in the lobby at previous Gen Cons, um, enjoy, like, line up for a, a long, long time and have it right away. We'll also be at Gen Con. Yep. We will not be in that line. Uh, no, but we maybe we'll talk to some people in that line. So we'll see you there. And we'll have, you know, more information about what we're actually doing at Gen Con. When it gets much, much, much closer. All right. Speaking of not really knowing what we're doing, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Death World Iblis Prime in the frontier city of Meridian, the Rogue Traders have set out to establish a colony in the name of the Holy Throne of Terra and Prophet. So... With the pending arrival of a small crude fleet, the rogue trader Silva Lionheart and her retinue have taken to investigating the sabotage at their mining camp and have managed to trace it back to the Technogangers, though the evidence has literally blown up in her face. So, the rogue trader takes a breath to recuperate and weigh her options. Instead of rushing headlong into a war with the gangs, uh, which is confusing to the rest of us because she just showed up here, uh, prior to this, we would just rush into a war with the gangs. Uh-huh. Instead, she seeks an audience with the Sentinels, who are one of the factions that uh, wield a great deal of power within the city of Meridian. They set up a meeting in the Nobles' Quarter, the Walled Garden, in an upscale open-air cafe. Apparently, they know what they're doing. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a shame. We were really hoping it would be in an alley, where there are no arbites. Yeah, only only one way in, one way out. Yeah. <laughs> Plenty of time but, to get there in advance for an ambush. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Silva offers intelligence on the inbound crew uh, to curry favor with the Sentinels, and in exchange, they warn her that they have consistently underestimated the resilience of the Technogangers. Like, they're not the first off-worlders that have spotted them and tried bullying them to get what they want. Man, we thought we were being original. (laughs) 
Uh, the Sentinels also do make a strange offhand comment, though. The faction who stands to gain the most from a war between the gangs and Roth Enterprises, which is us, is the Peacekeepers, the merchant collective that is most threatened by Roth Enterprises. Yeah, so you have, uh, if you recall, you've registered with the Peacekeepers as like a mercantile guild, and you are permitted to operate, right? Ostensibly, you are, you know, kind of part of the Peacekeepers, but if you were to grow too large, uh, develop too much industry, become too much of an economic factor, obviously you would undermine all of the other, um, shall we say, cartel members um, that are managing the city. Which is a shame because we thought we were just going to manipulate the techno gangers. Apparently, the peacekeepers, who we kind of thought we were at a detente with, um, I don't know, we begin suspecting them a lot, mm-hmm. especially with all these bombings. Right. But Silva, ever persistent, asks for an alliance with the Sentinels again, and again they decline. Instead, they do offer her um, some insight into their guiding principles. They say, uh, first, we always bet on the winning side, and second, we maintain the balance of power, deliberately and in that order. Yeah, so the um, not in any way subtle directive is win first and then we'll join. Mm-hmm. Or at least prove that you can. <laughs> yeah. So we take some time to consider and we plot out our next move, which is preparing a trade offer for the crew. Uh, because, you know, they're terrifying xenospecies that are kind of bird-like and kind of reptilian and they eat people and gain genetic knowledge by devouring corpses. But they're also always for hire. Mm-hmm. Consummate mercenaries. <laughs> Consummating mercenaries. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's what I meant. So fortunately, uh, Echo has extensive knowledge of uh, many xenospecies, but especially crude. And with her guidance, uh, you prepare a collection of samples, uh, including some of your mind ore, which they can use for technology, and then more enticingly, the exotic genetic material of the Emerald Stalkers. Oh, they're going to love that, I hope. Fingers crossed. Uh, We'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we are continuing our series on how to play different non-human PC races, and we are talking finally about the drow. Shane, what are drow? Um, they're bad elves. Yeah, totally badass elves. Well, that's one way to put it. Yeah, so they're the evil counterparts of elves, the underground elves. Uh, yeah, they're the the dark elves who were driven underground after an ancient schism in the elven pantheon. Uh, and they have taken to the caverns of the Underdark and um, created a society that's driven, you know, by betrayal and treachery and a lust for power and sort of in service to their main god, Lolf. Yeah, I guess you could say that R.A. Salvatore, like Bob Salvatore, has created a society driven by treachery and a lust for power. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So the drow have dark or sometimes it's depicted as nearly violet skin. They have long flowing white hair and they usually have red eyes. The women are larger and stronger than the men, just like the spiders that they worship, which are sacred to their demon goddess, Lolf. They have a matriarchal society, is ruled by priestesses and noble houses that are vying for Lolf's favor. Uh, Male drow, however, only fill subservient roles as mages or fighters. 
And of course, because drow society is wholly evil, and built on torture and backstabbing and slavery, all of which are very bad things, PC drow are almost always outcasts. Uh, They have either escaped or been driven away from the Underdark and now, usually, are wandering the surface alone. So the drow have been around for a long, long time, which is probably why people have so many feelings about them. Uh, they're one of the few monsters that are completely a D&D creation. I think the prose Edda refers to dark elves just in passing, but it doesn't really say anything about them other than like they live underground and they're dark. Mm-hmm. So Gary Gygax, good old grandpappy Gygax, took the opportunity to create an entirely new mythos and ecology around the term that he found. Yep, so they get mentioned in passing in the Elf section of the 1977 Monster Manual, and then they're first statted up in 1978 in the Hall of the Fire Giant King, which was the third module in Against the Giants, which is, of course, the famous series of modules. Yeah, so they turn out to be the secret backers of an alliance between different kinds of giants. After that, the adventure continues in Descent into the depths of the earth where the party explores the Underdark and a drow city, and then in Queen of the Demon Web Pits, where the party confronts Lolth herself on the 66th layer of the Abyss. If any of this sounds familiar, it's because these are some of the most famous modules in D&D history. Um, they're very good modules, especially considering that they're written for first edition. Uh, and they're probably like the main reason that drow were so popular with people. Like They were just so bizarre and alien and terrifying. Um, that they sort of lodged themselves in the psyche of D&D players of the era. One of those people was Bob Salvatore. Mm-hmm. So in 1988, R.A. Salvatore, E. Salvatore? I don't know. I don't remember. I'm going to pronounce it my way. In I 1988, R.A. Salvatore created Dritz de Worden, who is the chaotic good drow outcast uh, as a sidekick in the Icewind Dale trilogy. And he quickly became the most popular character, uh, starred in a few dozen more novels, including the Dark Elf trilogy, which let him flesh out drow society. Yeah, including pretty much everything that we know about the daily life of the drow and all of the extensive internal politics of their society, specifically in Menzo Branzen, uh, the city-state ruled by... Um, different noble houses, one of whom is Driss's mother. So they finally showed up as a PC race for the first time in 1985 in Unearthed Arcana, also written by Gygax, and they've been a PC race ever since, usually showing up in like a later Forgotten Realms source book. Although in 5th edition, they are in the core PHB as a sub-race of the elf. They are not a separate race. But don't tell them that. So because of Driss's Uh, Drow characters are often considered mopey or emo. Uh, They're often lone wolves who are difficult to be in a party with. Uh, There's a lot of debates over how much of that mm, reputation is earned and how much of it is just projected from Dritzt and also sort of the um, ongoing discussion of Dritzt. (laughs) And, And the times, right? Like he showed up in 88 and in those first three books... He's the sidekick, so you don't get a whole lot of him, and he's on the surface, and he's like, oh, I'm an outcast, and people don't like me. But, like, for good reason, people don't like you. And then he gets his own series in, like, the 90s, where 
in the trench coat and katana wielding 90s <laughs> yes where you know he's all alone in the underdark and his his dad is the only one who understands it but he can't tell him that he loves him and his mother's so evil and his siblings are killing each other and everyone's just hot and bad and wrong so you know it makes sense that <laughs> the drought are the 90s that's why we sort of love and hate them mm-hmm so nowadays, drow, to- drow tropes have become so ingrained in RPGs that um, many characterizations just invert the tropes. Um, you have like World of Warcraft night elves who are the good elves. Um, in Eberron, they're service-dwelling scorpion worshippers. Um, so, you know, they're not underground. They're not worshipping spiders. And they're not always evil. Eh. <laughs> It's a matter of perspective. Depends who's playing them. <laughs> okay. When when Shane is playing them, I almost said Brand there for a second. I almost said when hey, Brand I is have never them. played a drow. <laughs> we have no idea what that would be like. I'm definitely going to murder one of your characters and then reincarnate, reincarnate them as a drow. I'll play a drow artificer. I'll make that deal with you. Okay. Sure. Do they make evil constructs? Uh, they make misunderstood constructs. I'll tell you what they make. Their constructs have hard edges. Oh, adorable. Just like my katana. All right. So what are some reasons to play a drow if you're not Shane? Uh, I mean, you want to be an outsider, right? Like this is the quintessential, especially in Forgotten Realms, outsider race. Uh, you can be unfamiliar with the surface. Like you don't understand what's going on here. You think it's it's weird not to have a roof over your head. Um, you don't understand the customs. Why isn't everybody trying to um, backstab you? I mean, everyone's still trying to kill me. That makes sense. Sure. Um, you So you have an opportunity to like explore the world as someone who doesn't really understand it, which can be fun if you do understand it uh, as a player. It can also be fun if you don't, so you can sort of explore along with your character. Uh, you are also likely connected to other drow still living in Underdark society. So a character like Jarlaxle, um, who is like a mercenary, runs a mercenary group um, often on the surface, but he still has lots of connections to uh, the political networks of the drow in the Underdark. So you can you can sort of straddle both worlds um, if you don't want to just be wholly someone who is like completely cut off from drow society. You might also want to play a drow if you want to deal with in-game prejudice. Um, that is a certainly a theme of the drow. Um, you might also want to play a redemption arc, right? Um, trying to prove that not all drow are evil. Yeah, and like if you are doing um, like a drist type redemption arc, then that actually might be what you are doing the entire time you are playing the character. Like if you're playing in a traditional fantasy setting where drow are like horribly evil and you are not, then every single time you meet a new person, you're going to need to deal with the, um, the ways that they feel about you until you've like developed a giant reputation. And even then people don't even necessarily know that like you're that drow with that reputation. Right. Uh, you might also just want to be pretty effective in the dark, or you might be playing an underdark campaign and it might be awful handy to be a drow. Yeah, uh, you have a lot of abilities that are very useful down in the dark. Uh, you could be playing in a game where you don't have all of the lower baggage of the drow. So just like mechanically speaking, it's a great race for uh, playing underground. 
It could be that you want to play an elf, but you want to play an elf against type. You don't want to be noble and and bright and you know um, sitting in a tower studying like the weave for you know eight hundred years, uh, or like a ranger out in the woods. You can be the like sneaky rogue who's like using poison and skulking around and like nobody can see you, elf. Because elves are good rogues. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, if you're in this kind of, if you're in the kind of game that it is okay to do, you can be a drow and just like lean way into being a drow and just be that cackling evildoer who's like, you know, sneers and then smirks and then stabs and then licks the blade and like that. I think every single one of those tropes shows up in drow novels. So, episode fifty-one on elves covers the basic physiology of drow. Right, they have a long life. They have trance instead of sleep. They have fey ancestry. Um, but consider the differences between elves and drow. Um, a long life doesn't mean that much to a drow when you're very likely to be assassinated or you know murdered by somebody as soon as you come to the surface. So if you're older than a few centuries, you're a survivor and you have seen a lot of people die. Yeah. There are no old drow who are not also skilled and dangerous. And remember, like you're an elf, right? So you could be 500 years old and you still look like you're 25, right? So, you know, people pick the age of their elf adventurer, like just they make it whatever they want. Um, If you are going to be an older drow, consider how did you even make it here? Um, You don't get the situation where you have like a 450 year old gnome who uh, has been a cobbler their entire life and is like a really good cobbler, right? Because that drow would have been murdered by their apprentice. Yep. Um, Also, you might note that uh, trancing is super important to drow because if you sleep, you might be stabbed in your sleep. But if you never sleep, you cannot. (laughs) So... Keep in mind, uh, you know, like the whole idea of trancing is kind of critical to drow society because of all of the the backstabbing and treachery that goes on. Um, you know, drow have to keep a very careful watch. Yeah, and I think the usual characterization of an elf trance is like it's this peaceful meditative state where you become in tune with your feelings or you practice um, different movements so that you can, you know, get better at it in your mind. But... Uh, a drow in a party who is keeping watch is also probably very much on edge. It is probably the time that you're maybe even the most anxious mm-hmm. is during that trance. And if you are a drow who's trying to redeem themselves, what is it that you see when you trance, right? You see images and you you know, you know you dream of a sort, right? There is likely a lot of blood on your hands or you have seen a lot of people killed. So I don't know. Do you have, do you feel bad about that? Do you see visions of that? Uh, drow also have superior dark vision, which is... Simply put, the best in the game. Uh, even versus other creatures that can see in the dark, like most PC races, you see them before they see you. Yeah, this came up in um, our one of our recent games where you guys were walking down a hallway and Brian's character had essentially superior dark vision, like 120 feet of dark vision. And you knew that everyone else that you were going to encounter also had dark vision because like, there was no light in this tunnel. Uh but you were still able to get the drop on them because he had 60 more feet of dark vision than any of the enemies. Right. Um, Consider, does everyone know that you have better dark vision than everybody else? Or do people just assume that all dark vision is the same? 
And do you tell them that you have better dark vision or do you maybe just keep that as a secret just in case? Right. Um, also, given that dark vision, you should be more comfortable in the dark. And in places like caverns, it's likely you won't even ever hit the limits of your dark vision. You'll be able to see as far as the terrain allows. Yeah, think of it this way. Like if you are um, you know, a dwarf and you're underground, you have 60 feet of dark vision. Okay, but if you build a, a really big cave then you can't necessarily see the ceiling. You are still sort of adrift in a in an ocean of darkness, whereas a drow can still see, usually see all of the walls. It, it makes the environment much uh, less disorienting, even compared to other underground creatures. On the flip side, of course, you have sunlight sensitivity, unlike that dwarf. Uh, this, I think, gets often like hand-waved by GMs because you just don't want to deal with a character who is taking a bunch of penalties when there's sunlight out and nobody wants to think about the weather. Um, I would recommend either not doing that, like not hand-waving it away, like make the character deal with it, uh, or ask the player just sort of at the beginning, like, how is it that they have overcome the sunlight sensitivity? And then you can bring it up very occasionally as a plot point. So, like, maybe they wear sun filters over their eyes, or they have a white hat, or goggles, or something. They've been living on the surface for, like, 40 years. Or sunscreen. Like, SPF yeah. 120. Wasn't there some vampire movie where they put on, like, really strong sunscreen, and it basically looked like they had, like, titanium oxide all over them? That's <laughs> really dumb. It's really dumb. So, keep in mind, uh, along with that sunlight sensitivity, is that you are naturally an underground dweller so what does the surface feel like uh how do you feel about the sky uh, what are the distances like you know the concept of being a mile away in a straight line is completely foreign to a drow yeah uh, i think of like being in an open field and looking up at the sky for a drow something akin to um being a human and being out in the middle of the ocean and having no idea what's like below you but knowing that like there's three miles of of water and creatures below you yeah, think of how like overstimulated it must be to like be at like the edge of a biome. You know, like where oh if God, you look yeah. one way, like you see a jungle, and if you look the other way, you see like a mountain or plains or something. Like <laughs> there's just so much more to see if you're normally limited to 120 feet. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think I heard it. This is maybe an apocryphal story of like one of those um, tribes that doesn't really have contact with um, the modern world. And that, you know, they live in um, a very thick jungle where you typically can't see very far. And so they never developed words for objects that are very far away mm. um, because you just so rarely saw those. Um, I think, yeah, I think a, a drow should be confused by vast distances or being able to see a mountain that is 120 miles away. Right. Or, you know, the moon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, they probably do, you know, come to the surface at night. You're right. You're right. They should be mostly terrified of the sun and the stars would also be weird. Right. Uh, how do you feel about spells that create light? Um, like a candle's probably fine. You still need those to read um, or to see colors in the Underdark. I think maybe like the light cantrip is fine. But like, what about the sunlights? Like the daylight spell? That's That's got to be certainly jarring, maybe, yeah. if not terrifying. So speaking of spells, uh, keep in mind that all drow, even children, can cast the Dancing Lights cantrip. Uh, they also get spells that are useful for fighting invisible creatures and creatures you can't see, right? So things like fairy fire, or they get the ability to use darkness. So 
um, you know, drow are highly specialized for their environment. They are very used to winning and surviving against external threats in the Underdark. Uh, it's the other drow that they have to worry about. Yeah. Yeah, I bet uh, even a, a drow adventure probably like has a momentary feeling of comfort when they get stuck inside a darkness spell that someone else is casting or even some other spell that causes darkness, right? Even if it's like maddening darkness, right? Like for a moment, it's like, ah, I like it here. Yeah. Oh, wait. Okay. Things are screaming from the far realm. That's probably not great. So let's uh, let's run through some uh, key points of drow culture. And this is largely focused on Forgotten Realms. Yeah, that's pretty much where they get fleshed out the most. Um, there, the noble houses in Underdark city-states are ruled by matron mothers who commune with the priestesses of Lolth and demons to divine what it is their pretty crazy goddess actually wants because she is both cruel and capricious. So sometimes those directives are like contradictory or maybe even suicidal for her followers. So this is supposedly a chaotic evil society, uh, and yet its hierarchy is extremely rigid. Uh, Advancement pretty much only happens through assassination of your superiors or of your siblings, um, and they are, I think, almost exclusively matriarchies, right? Uh, Yeah, there there are like a few outlets for um, like male drow who are very good at what they do, but mostly they have to sort of exist outside society. Yeah. The female nobles become clerics of Lolth. The males become fighters or mages. <laughs> if you're not a noble, though, you keep society running by being a servant or performing menial labor. So slavery is common, uh, mostly of other sapient races, either from the Underdark or captives from the surface that have either been stolen by raiding parties or been traded. Um, though I, I don't think it's above the drow to put other drow into bondage, is it? Uh, I think... I think that's like a huge insult and then like less insulting would be just to kill them. Mm. Yeah. And what about putting them in bondage gear? Uh, I think that's all they wear all the time. Right. Judging from the art for the last 30 years. Uh, Because, I mean, this is where the drow get their reputation for being so freaking emo is like they're, they're white wolf vampires, right? Like murder and torture and incest and demonology are all common and acceptable um it it is one of those like fictional societies that don't really make any sense like like the star trek mirror universe right like if everybody is evil and backstabbing each other then like wouldn't they all have already killed each other by now it does seem that way yeah yeah and you're like where are all these people coming from how do it's like um when i watched dexter (laughs) or when i did watch dexter i'm like how is anyone still alive in miami with all these serial killers (laughs) (laughs) You have a murder rate of like 14%. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So any good drow, which is to say any drow who is going to uh, object to these common practices, right? Any free thinking drow uh, will be killed or corrupted and made to, you know, adopt these practices or will simply leave drow society. If they do end up surviving the Underdark, they might be able to make it to the surface where everyone is terrified of them. Uh, on the surface, these lone outcasts probably will need to spend years earning the trust of others, and often that's just never going to come, uh, either because still nobody trusts them or they get murdered. So a lot of them end up just disguising themselves with either makeup or magic. And then in terms of religion, the main deity for Drow is, of course, Loth, the Spider Queen, 
she demands absolute obedience, though. Just not very chaotic. <laughs> no, Honestly. It's, it's not. Uh, no. <laughs> but it's, it's chaotic because she's often unclear in, as to what she wants. So things just uh, fall apart. <laughs> yeah, a common theme in the books is like, oh, Loth wants to shake up drow society and she, you know, wants to throw things into chaos. And like, that's that's how we're going to figure out like who's the toughest and strongest and they're going to rise to the top. And I don't know, it sounds very familiar these days. It's mm. like, I just want to burn the system down. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things she really, really hates though is when drow worship anybody else. Like, for example, Elastrae, the patron of good drow. I think she like dances under the moonlight or something like that. That sounds pretty nice. That mm. sounds like a better goddess than a de- demon worshiping spider lady. Yeah, good drow. So family ties, they hardly exist. Although, I mean, I guess in the fiction, occasionally they surface like, oh, I'll murder you last because you're my kin. Yeah, it seems like they only really exist for uh, either powering your way up the ladder by killing the people above you um, or guilt tripping the children below you into doing something for you. Right. Uh, and then kids, you know, you you play your kids against each other in a survival of the fittest, like, test. Or who will be my heir? <laughs> One of you will stab me in the back. It will be the best of you. <laughs> yeah, basically. I do think, I think I noticed this from the novels, that, like, drow seem to have more children than other elves. Like, you'll get matron mothers who have, like, five or six children. Uh, I'm guessing because, you know, half of them are going to get murdered. And then any allegiance that Drow have tend to be transactional. Um, so nobles are bound to their family house and their fortunes typically rise or fall with the house. Um, but outside of that, it's pretty much, you know, quid pro quo. What have you done for me lately? All right, let's talk about Drow interactions because those are probably the thing that you're after if you're playing a Drow. So the big one, of course, is other Drow. Um, if you have contact with any, then typically in normal drow society other drow are competition there's someone to best or to prove yourself against if you're one of the outcasts who live on the surface though you're probably more terrified of drow than almost anyone else because the (laughs) drow hate traitors more than they hate any of the other races and they hate all the other races right Um, and then within drow society men tend to cower when women approach yeah, they've got these crazy whips and poison whips, and they're not pleasant. Yeah. With other Underdark species, they are perpetually at war, although occasionally they are trading partners, even though the Drow are not very good trading partners because they will always betray you. Although maybe, wait, does that make them good trading partners because they are predictable? They are predictable. That is, I mean, what makes the Drow unpredictable is you're never sure when they're going to betray you. That's true. But that just doesn't seem that chaotic. No, it's not. <laughs> it's almost like people don't understand or agree on alignment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Weird. Weird. Uh, they'll work with other horrible abominations like mind flayers. Like they'll happily have mind flayers control their thralls or they'll sometimes trade slaves to mind flayers so that the flayers can eat the slaves brains, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they're not very nice then they pretty much see all surface dwellers as the same in that they hate them. Um, Any race that lives under the sun, they feel like they have a superiority complex. And so the drow just don't truck with that. Outcasts though. Like, so you're mostly dealing with surface dwellers. Um, I think the, 
one of the first things you're going to need to figure out if you are not playing a drow simply because of the mechanics uh, is how do you interact with other people and how do other people respond to you? Because like a lot of people will sometimes be like a half orc because or or like a tiefling because you know you want to deal a bit with like people who are not comfortable with you or who make the worst kinds of assumptions about you and you know you want the opportunity to prove them wrong or show them up but with drow this is like cranked up to 11 like there are a lot of gms and a lot of players who just won't understand a game set in the forgotten realms or greyhawk where you can have a drow that isn't immediately murdered on site by people who live on the surface. Or, you know, if they're peasants, they'll just run screaming, looking for the nearest person who can murder the drow on site. Mm -hmm. So you need to have that conversation uh, at your table, not just with your GM, but like other players at the table so that it doesn't necessarily break their verisimilitude. Or if it would, what is the reason that the drow can be in the party? How does it make sense? Uh, well, clearly because the drow is wearing the shining armor and a uh, and a symbol of Pelor. Yeah, it's a Draladin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think in um, Icewind Dale, uh, they just open with like just being there and being a friend. <laughs> yeah. It's, and then like you buy into it after three books, and now we'll do that flashback of how this all came about. Now we'll solve the problem we created. Yeah, I think Brunor Battlehammer tried to kill him a bunch of times. But, like, he's an elf and, and he's a dwarf. So, like, they had a lot of time to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, well, 75 years later, I began to trust him a bit. And, I, oh, and there was definitely, like, a saved his life thing. He definitely saved Brunner's life. I forget how that happened. But, you know, as you do. Uh, so then the extra exception to service dwellers uh, for drow is going to be how they interact with elves. Which is that they take every opportunity to torture and kill them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, hey, it's mutual, okay? Because <laughs> uh, even outcasts are, uh, I guess, sort of jointly intrigued, but mostly afraid of elves, um, because most elves will just kill drow on sight, uh, outcast or not. Yeah, you don't know that they're an outcast. You see one drow, you assume there are 10 more because it's a raiding party, and you shoot this one as quickly as you can. Mm-hmm. And even if he says he's an outcast, you can't trust a tricky drow. No. They're always lying. Yeah, they're lying and backstabbing. All he's trying to get you to do is turn around so he can stab you in the back. Which, you know, 99% chance you're right. Fair. (laughs) No, that's what my mother, father, all of my cousins, my siblings, my aunts, my uncles do. Not me. And my great, 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 great grandparents because they're still alive. Oh, God. They're terrifying. (laughs) All right. So what are some reasons for Drow to go adventuring? Hey, you're an outcast. You don't fit into drow society and you were able to escape. Lucky you. Mm-hmm. So now you're here on the surface and man, it is not that much easier. Nope. At least people tend to stab you in the front on the surface. Yeah, you're right. They're like, drow, I will now kill you. And you're like, wow, that's really nice of you. Yeah, thanks for the heads up. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you for being so forthright. <laughs> I would like to prevent you from doing that, sir. <laughs> I would have you know that it'll ha uh, uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, aside from just needing to stay on the move because you're worried about uh, people always trying to stab you, I think if you are truly a good drow um, who is on the path to redemption, it's quite likely you might be suffering some survivor's guilt. Maybe um, guilt about the people that you killed or people that you saw killed. Um, or people who 
you know, you couldn't save. It could also be the people that you had to leave behind because, you know, you have these intertwining family ties or maybe ties of friendship because you experience those because you're a good drow. Um, that you may not be able to take everyone with you who might feel the same way or who you feel like could have been brought over to the side of good, but mm -hmm. you just had to leave them behind and now they're stuck there in a terrible society. You also couldn't like free all the slaves in the slave pens. Um, so it's definitely a reason to like, sort of go out there, make your fortune, find magic like items or gain magical ability or knowledge to, you know, keep yourself alive, but also maybe to go back and actually save somebody you couldn't before. Similarly, a drow who sees the error of their ways might be out seeking penance. Um, you know, especially if you uh, have rejected Loth, um, you might seek, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, forgiveness or, or to earn forgiveness for all of the things that you've done. That might be driven by your new deity or by sort of an outside council or something like that. Yeah, I think this is um, a good backstory for a character who still wants to be tied to a particular area like it's one thing to stay on the move so that you stay safe but it's very hard to get people to trust you when you know you've helped them once or twice and then you move on and never see them again you need to have continued contact with them you need to be like that drow who lives in the woods who like isn't all that bad apparently um so like one way to make your penance is to like slowly try to regain the trust of good people. And like, if they can see the good in you, then maybe you can see the good in you, but also, you know, keep an eye out for Lolf. Yeah. Don't, don't get spider queened if you can avoid it. <laughs> spider queened. Uh, you might also simply be lost. Um, especially if you're on the surface, uh, I imagine navigating under dark caverns is rather routine for a drow, but um, with the vastness and, you know, uh, greatness of distance and the disorientation of sunlight, um, you might simply be lost uh, and unable to find your way back to where you belong. Yeah, I kind of love the idea of like playing a drow who's evil, uh, but is sort of forced into working with other people because, uh, you know, it's in their own self-interest. You know, they're just like, what are all these giant sticks growing out of the ground? I don't, they all look alike. How do you even tell one from another? How do you know what direction you're walking in? Nothing's magnetic. I would love to just be that, that grumpy drow who, you know, keeps threatening to stab people. Mm -hmm. Probably doesn't actually stab people because <laughs> then you just starve in the woods. Right. And of course, any of these could be cover stories for a drow spy. Um, of course, drow are constantly worried about invasions from uh, surface dwellers and, and various threats to their society. So they send out spies to the surface to gather as much intelligence as they can uh, and want to use that against their enemies. Yeah, I actually love the idea of a Forgotten Realms game that is incorporating the lore of Drist. So like, people are hearing these stories about this drow who's actually good and like now there are these other copycat drow who are like also good and actually it turns out you know if you run into a a drow ranger in the woods the 90 percent odds that they're actually pretty good and that lolt then starts sending out drow to the surface to pretend to be like good outcasts so mm -hmm. they can screw with things Im imposter drists yeah i mean drow look alike right all right so in terms of classes uh, you'll have plus two dex and plus one charisma, so uh, there are some natural fits there for drow. Yeah, rogue, fighter, monk, ranger. Uh, melee bard is really good. 
in the spellcasting classes, you could also take Sorcerer or the uh, Lore Bard, one of the spellcasting bards, or Warlock. Note that they're not particularly good at being clerics or, or mages, which are canonically the classes that drow that live underground take. Um, which I guess is in keeping with the fact that Lolth is a terrible optimizer. Mm-hmm. She really seems to be like, hey, let's do that thing that will keep us shooting ourselves in the feet. Forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how we'll take over the multiverse and get back at the elves. So in combat, um, Drow are typically portrayed as pretty effective, uh, very tactical, um, very cautious, uh, the type who would use ambush or traps and tricks in order to ensure that they win. They're cruel, though. So one of their downfalls can be that they will stop to coup de gras an opponent or stop to cause pain rather than necessarily killing. Uh, they're definitely not willing to give quarter. And of course, if you are a draw outcast, it's probably the complete opposite of this. You're almost paladin-like in the way that you uh, deal in combat. Announcing first, calling it out, giving people the chance to step back, always granting quarter. Drow are also naturally going to be acrobatic and uh, highly mobile, so they would use that to their advantage if they were um, either within confined spaces or taking full advantage of being on the surface where you don't have the restriction of confined spaces. And remember that even non-weapon users can use drow weapons because they all get training. So those are rapiers, short swords, and hand crossbows. I always like the idea of like the the drow paladin pulling out the hand crossbow because they're like, no, I'm very good with this weapon. Yeah. Um, Aren't you worried about the range? Mm, I don't see why I'd ever have to shoot it more than 30 feet. (laughs) If they're further away from me than that, I've already lost. They're out of line of sight. (laughs) (laughs) So for any kind of drow, I think probably the most important skill is going to be stealth. If you're a traditional drow, you obviously want to be able to sneak around in the Underdark. Um, if you are on the surface, you definitely want to be able to sneak around so that people can't just track you down and be like, oh, like, hey, that's where that drow, drow lives, in that cave, let's go kill it. Deception is also a very good one for all kinds of drow. You want to lie about who you are, you want to, you know, put on uh, your disguise self spell and um, pretend to not be a drow, you're going to need to deceive people about it. Yeah, and persuasion probably works well for outcasts uh, as they're literally trying to talk the angry mob out of, you know, pitchforking them. Yeah, look at my long flowing white hair. I'm basically Fabio. (laughs) Maybe dye that. (laughs) Right? You you think? It's like a a white-tailed deer. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's a dead giveaway for a drow. (laughs) So drow items notoriously break down when they are brought to the surface because for reasons, I don't know, novelists and source books keep making up different reasons why, but mainly it was because they were too powerful for player characters to have. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because <laughs> like drow used to have that, uh, what, EL, uh, the effective level. Oh, they, oh right. the level adjustment is what right. it was. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes one or as much as two. So they had strong weapons uh, and armor like made of adamantine and they had pewafwi cloaks that, you know, um, made them very hard to see and gave them extra bonuses. I'm sorry, what kind of cloaks? Pewafwi. You know, it's just my widow pewafwi. Yeah. (laughs) Is that a, are you saying P 
pirafri? <laughs> Do you like my quoke? It's a pawafwi. <laughs> a pilafli? A pilaf. It's a it's a cloak, cloak yes. pilaf. <laughs> it's it's cloak pilaf. Yes. Oh well, <laughs> it's, it's a much fluffier yeah. cloak. I would like a uh, cloaker pilaf if I don't mind. <laughs> it's but a cloaker. I... <laughs> oh no, it's a cloaker to drop from the ceiling on my pilafwi. <laughs> How could you ever I'll stab this drow in the back? Like this. this one you'd stab in the front. <laughs> or in the throat. Or, yeah, preferably. <laughs> so have you ever played drow characterization? I have not, except as a GM. I've played oh, drow. Well, naturally. Yeah. Which, you know, you just sort of like twirl the mustache a bit. Uh, don't overdo it because then obviously they become easy caricatures, but... I think it is a lot of fun and very interesting to play characters who sort of have a fundamentally different understanding of the world than your traditional adventuring party, especially when you're sort of uh, having them confront the adventuring party. Because, you know, eventually you're, you're probably not like murdering an entire drow city, right? You are coming to some sort of agreement or deal with them and and so the challenge then becomes like one how do we get alive get out alive and two how do we offer them something that they actually want because like they probably don't want our magic items because like theirs are better yeah yeah I, i've also never played drow um i think the advantage that you have as a pc is that you kind of get to narrate your intentions to the party mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. um one of the challenges of running drow is as a gm is that you can't necessarily foretell that very easily um you know given that drow are intentionally supposed to be good at deception you shouldn't be able to easily understand what their uh true intent is and it just makes them very hard to trust as uh npcs yeah i i like that when you're running them as a gm like they there should be they should be layered right there are always um plans within plans uh, which don't always necessarily make sense because Loth doesn't always make sense. Right. But when, but when you're actually playing one, like it's nice to be able to subvert the stereotypes kind of however you want. You know, you can lean into Paladin, Drow, like Drist. Um, you can also just be someone who like wants to just be normal but had this crazy upbringing. Um, or you can just be someone who like for some reason or somehow was raised on the surface or... I don't know. I might play a drow who was like not a drow, but was reincarnated as a drow. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now you're sort of like in this form and you're sort of dealing with the repercussions of this form. Right. You must have been a terrible person in a previous life. Is that how that works? Is it karmic? Yeah. (laughs) That's why I got to be a bugbear because I was good (laughs) and bugbears are awesome. All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? No. And that's what worries me. If we're going to get stabbed in the back, let's plan ahead and move on to the character creation forge. The character creation forge. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. Thank God you're back. You can tweet at <laughs> Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So Total Party Thrill is brought to you by Cobalt Press. 
Want to learn the secrets of elven magic? Or blast your enemies with battle magic? Or build cunning mechanical servants with clockwork magic? Yes, yes, and yes. Well then, the Deep Magic series from Cobalt Press has all this and more for 5th edition D&D. More? Like what? Oh yes, there's time magic, there's rune magic, there's illumination. There are nearly 20 PDFs with new ones coming out all the time. That's a that's a lot of PDFs. That is that's a lot of PDFs. Nearly dozens of PDFs. That is alarmingly close to dozens of PDFs. Uh, what can you find in all of these PDFs? Are they chock full of info? They are. In this series, you will find new magic schools, sorcerous origins, warlock patrons, feats, spells, magic items, and more. That's pretty much every cross-section of magic available in 5th edition. And each of those is uh, woefully understocked right now in 5th edition. I desperately would like to see more of them. So, you can pick up the Deep Magic series for 5th edition at www.coboldpress.com. So, this week in the Character Creation Forge, we of course built... Dristowerden, rather than some sort of like, uh, the backstabby backstabber. Okay, Ishan, I have never read a Drist novel. Really? Uh, tell me about Drist. Who's Drist? You, What's Drist? What's a Drist? You know everything about him. He's that two-weapon fighting ranger. He's very dexterous and mobile. He makes many, many quick hits. He's acrobatic. He has all kinds of, uh, crazy, like, flashy sword work. Uh, he rarely or never casts spells, even though he is ostensibly a ranger. Um, holds down the fort up in Icewind Dale, keeping everyone safe from all the orcs and uh, the demons, and he is uh, a bit of a Mary Sue. Okay, mm. no, he's a quintessential Mary Sue. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Is and he maybe got... the first character listed on that uh, Mary Sue page? I TV think he tropes? might be, yeah. <laughs> and he has crazy good magic items. Like, he is burdened down with legendary magic items uh, he is the proverbial festooned with magic <laughs> items <laughs> yes he is. which makes him kind of hard to build uh in 5e because if so he's been statted out in all previous editions um he used to just be straight ranger i think in first and second edition and then people realized that rangers weren't very good when they got to third edition and they made him mostly fighter a little bit of barbarian and a little bit of ranger Fourth edition, you had an NPC stat block as a 21st level skirmisher. Oh, fun. Yeah. Um, but this one, this one I think works, and I think it's fair that the ranger, Drista Orden, the most famous ranger of all time, except maybe Aragorn, uh, doesn't have any ranger levels. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because, <laughs> nope, you know, that's... we want him to be effective and good. All right. So what is the build? It is Scout Rogue 15, Battlemaster Fighter 5. So Scout, of course, lets us sneak attack with those dual-wielded scimitars. You'll get expertise in stealth nature and survival, which I think is actually really great, because one of the things I hate about Scout is that uh, you only get those expertises if you didn't already have nature and survival when you hit Scout level 3. But that works perfectly for Drist, because he had no training in those until he, like, escaped from the city and then like was wandering the underdark so like he learned those on his own later in his life Mm -hmm. scout rogue is also incredibly mobile you'll have cutting action um to move as a bonus action you'll also you'll also have skirmisher which lets you move as a reaction uh when an enemy ends their turn adjacent to you Uh, and you'll have plus 10 foot speed as well um to help you get a little further away uh, you're tough to hit. You've got Uncanny Dodge, Evasion, and Slippery Mine gives you wisdom saving throws. And at level 14, you're getting Blind Sense, which 
he definitely has because he's always fighting in those darkness spheres. Mm -hmm. And then with reliable talent, well, he's just never going to be found out because he's extraordinarily stealthy. Then from five levels of fighter, we'll get the usual stuff we're here for, action surge, extra attack, two-weapon fighting style, and then we'll have Battlemaster maneuvers. Now, uh, Driss does a lot of maneuvers over the course of 300 books, so uh, we'll go for the most mm, broadly useful ones, shall we? Um, Disarming attack, parry, precision attack, uh, pushing attack repost so you can strike back uh trip is good um and then sweeping that's lets you do damage to multiple targets yeah you're gonna need to just pick some of those but those are i think some of the best options uh and then you know his action surge just i would flavor as um you know when he does that flurry of attacks where he just sort of like i don't know whips out the scimitars in in sweeping arcs and you know Bob Salvatore is like, ah, and then a hundred wounds blossomed on the orc and he fell down dead. Oh, blossoming wounds. Same. It's like, uh, it's flowers. It's Mm -hmm. it's adorable. Uh, You will notice that we don't have a a Guenevar here, his um, panther companion, because in the books, it's not a real panther. It is, of course, a figurine of wondrous power. Um, As it should be. Yes, exactly. Uh, of course, it, it doesn't really work as a figurine of wondrous power because uh, the one that I think is closely statted, you can only use once a week, and Guinevar was basically around all the time. But if you notice, even Chris Perkins, uh, who statted out a Drist in 5th edition for a game that he was playing in, didn't make him a Beastmaster Ranger. He made him pure fighter. <laughs> And gave him uh, a legendary uh, Guinevar figurine of wondrous power that could be used for 12 hours every 24 hours. Oh, yeah, makes sense. (laughs) So in terms of leveling order, we should just start Fighter 5 and then take all the rogue levels at once. Yeah, if you're going to be a a Drist clone, like he starts out learning to be a fighter in Men's of Bronze and, and then escapes, and those are his rogue levels. So Shane, who is your... Dristorden. My Dristorden is uh, a coward. Uh, you played a coward last time. I'm playing a coward this time. <laughs> uh, so this episode, my character is the one who gets to run away. You know, you you have this kind of fundamental nature of uh, Drow society, right? Is the idea of competition and betrayal and backstabbing. Um, uh, you know, the use of blades for evil and self-advancement. Um, my my Dritz has left Drow society, has outcast himself, uh, and, and sort of refuses to use his scimitars uh, if he can avoid it. Um, so he offers quarter, he does everything he can to avoid needing to use them, and it is only when he's backed into a corner um, that he will bring them out, and oh boy, <laughs> will he do so. Uh, you know, if you're only planning to attack uh, one round in a fight, you're going to use all of your maneuvers at once, you're going to use your action surge, you are just going to uh, blow everything up uh, all at once. Um add in your sneak attack, all that stuff. So I think the um, 
the way that Maedrist is kind of uh, working in the world is is he's looking for redemption for himself for being born a drow. Um, you know, he has a moral center that was innate in him, uh, which he recognizes is not innate in all drow, and he wants to figure out why. Um, and he doesn't want that to be corrupted before he understands why he's different. That's a lovely arc. How about your Drist? My Drist uh, is a scorpion worshiper on the continent of Zendrik in Eberron. So one of the things about this build, and I think pretty much any Drist build, is that they're good alone. And so she uh, acts as um, the champion of a uh, tribe on Zendrik that basically uses combat with her as a test for people seeking to travel deeper into uh, what they considered the sacred uh, areas of Zendrik. Um, you know, it was cursed by the dragons because the giants used magic that they should not have. And so anybody who ends up there and is seeking out the knowledge of uh, the continent is probably there for nefarious reasons, uh, or even if they're not there for nefarious reasons, they're probably going to cause a lot more trouble than they should. So you really need to prove yourself. And she's the one who st- the tribe sort of puts forward as the person who you need to defeat in order to uh, actually have the entire tribe not uh, fall upon you and end your tiny little adventuring party very quickly. Um, nice. So you know, here in the jungle, there's no arena. It's here in the jungles of Zendrik. She is stalking you. And, you know, if you want to send two or three of your party members after her, that's totally fine too. She'll disappear into the darkness and pick you off one by one. Would you say that she's, she tells you, welcome to the jungle, baby. You're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it starts off as fun and games, mm-hmm. but you are definitely going to die. All right. What do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about going to the library. And in the Character Creation Forge, we're building the bookworm. Well, that's it for episode 190 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. So before you go, how about checking out The Great American Novel, a role-playing game now on Kickstarter? This is developed by Christopher Gray, friend of the show, and creator of Happiest Apocalypse on Earth, which was nominated for the 2018 Ennies Product of the Year. Don't understand what we're talking about? Well, the great American novel brings a literary framework to RPGs so that you can play the same dramatic character-driven experience you find in literature at your table using a system built entirely around your characters, their motivations, and the conflicts that get in their way. It's almost like playing Total Party Thrill, the game, Mm-hmm. This game can be used for any number of settings, including those found in your favorite novels, favorite films, or favorite television shows, and it always presents a complete fictional experience with a satisfying conclusion to every session. Unlike most literature. <laughs> That's true. I'm always disappointed <laughs> by the ending. <laughs> Does this game facilitate me being indolent and rich and just lying around and being a little annoyed at why all these poor people don't love my trains? Wait, is this Citizen Kane? (laughs) Yes, but also it's anything by Ayn Rand. Oh, 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 okay. The poor people, that's where you got it. Yeah. (laughs) 
well, can I play a game about me trying to sleep with my, what, stepsister? Uh, is this uh, cruel intentions? While, <laughs> while I uh, corrupt the poor, innocent daughter of a rival noble house? I certainly hope so. That definitely sounds like an RPG plot. Yeah, we're dangerous liaisons. <laughs> well, you know what? For all that and more, take a look at the great American novel on Kickstarter and help make this passion project a reality. Backers are going to get a complete ready-to-play beta version of the game upon funding. You can go to Christopher.world for more information, or you can go to Kickstarter to back it right now. Brought to you by Gallant Knight Games.